Many years ago, when I was a very young man, I took numerous trips uh, across the United States. And, you know, when I, I try to go a different way each time, and each different route or each different place, you know, really captured my heart in different ways. One thing that I could never really get over, and you see it in certain places, but really in places like Wyoming, is when you are out on a very dark night and a clear night and you look up in the sky at the stars. It is absolutely breathtaking. I remember one time we camped out by Devil's Tower in Wyoming and wow, it was just there was it was just amazing. Being from New York and New Jersey my whole life, it was almost like it was a different sky. In some ways, if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, I've been there a few times, it was almost like the Grand Canyon. It was almost scary. There's so many stars in the sky. But, you know, it's easy to take that stuff for granted. I grew up near the water, uh, you know, salt water guy, and, and it's easy to kind of get used to the beach and, and, the, and the beauty of that. And it's really a shame when that happens, that we fail to really, on a regular basis, appreciate the beauty of this world. Yet creation was to, there's many things about it, but it was given to us by God to be enjoyed by us, but it's also meant to reveal our Creator to us. Now, Psalm 8 is, is an interesting psalm in its placement. It's strategically placed in the middle of 10 lamenting psalms. You're like, what's a lamenting psalm? A lamenting psalm is a psalm of sorrow, of grief, or mourning. So you have five, then you have Psalm 8, and then you have another five. And perhaps that's because in the middle of despair, there is something that God wants us to remember. What would that be? Verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent, some versions say majestic, is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. And then let's jump down to the very last verse of Psalm 8, verse 9. O Lord, O Lord, how excellent, how majestic, I like the word majestic better, we'll talk about that in a little bit, is your name in all the earth. Now you say, he kind of said the same thing. Yeah, he did, why? Because in the middle of lamenting, in the middle of sorrow and grief, and mourning, he gives us a psalm. The psalmist gives us a psalm about God. God gives us a psalm in the midst of our pain, something to know about himself. And so the title of our message today is a simple one. It's the majesty of our Lord. The majesty of our Lord. The psalm heading goes like this, to the chief musician, so we know it's a song, it can be sung, uh, on the instrument of gaff, I don't know how many of you out there play the gaff, but uh, that's what it is, a psalm of David. So David wants us to delight in the excellency, in the majesty, in the, in the splendor of God to the point in time not so we think, yeah, we should worship him, but we must worship him. There's really no other choice. So now, coming out of Psalm 3 through 7, uh, Psalms of darkness, now the sun rises. And I think that's an important thing for us to remember in the darkness of night sometimes, the darkness of our lives. The sun always rises. It always does. About a thousand years before Jesus was born, David grew up uh, as a shepherd boy. And no doubt when he was out in the fields at night with the flocks, he would just lay down on the ground and he would look up. And there wasn't all those lights like we have now, make it very hard to see the stars and on a comparative basis. And he would look up and he would just gaze upon the stars and probably reflecting upon the Lord. Now, he was there to guard the flock. That might explain why, why Psalms 3 to 7, the lamenting Psalms, are individualistic. But here, 
the people of God themselves are addressed. We are addressed as a congregation. God's flock is being addressed by the great shepherd of Israel, the Lord God himself. So David, who would become King David, the, the shepherd of Israel, and that's what they would call the kings, and, and we're told that David in the Psalms, we're told that David, you know, he shepherded the people of Israel. He, he guided them by the skillfulness of his hand and the integrity of his heart. He is going to shepherd our hearts tonight, but he's also going to do what he always does or almost always does, point us to the Lord Jesus Christ, his descendant who would come a thousand years later. Bible scholar Derek Kidner uh, said this about this psalm. He said, this psalm is an unsurpassed example of what a hymn should be, celebrating as it does the glory and grace of God, rehearsing who he is and what he has done, and relating us and our world to him with masterly economy of words and in a spirit of mingled joy and awe. I love that, a, ming a spirit of mingled joy and in awe. And so David really demonstrates for us what a worship song really should be, a, a, a celebration of, of wonder, a celebration of the grace of God, a celebration of the glory of God. And so David is leading us in joyfully singing of God and his power and his love, what he has done for his people, what he is doing now for his people, what he will do for his people. And so King David invites us to join him in singing a song of joy and a song of awe in God. It's almost like when you read some of these psalms of great joy, it's almost like people like David, instead of bringing God into our problems, it's, it, it's, it's like it's like. God, come over here, man. you got to check out what's going on. Here's my problem. Don't forget me down here. No, it's a little different. It's sort of the opposite. It's almost like he takes his problems into God. And so our problems always look big to us, and then we say, come on, God, look at our, my big problem. And yet it seems a lot of times like the Bible writers say, well, here's my problem. It seems big. Let me bring it into God. Oh, look, now my problem doesn't seem so big. That will change his perspective, that will change my perspective, and that will change your perspective. And so the soul-searching challenge is this. Do we think about this? Don't feel bad about it. Challenge yourself in this because we want to change. We want to feel guilty. The idea is not to come to church just to feel guilty, like, oh, felt guilty, did my job, I feel better now. No, no, no. We want God to speak to us and realize that he wants to change us for the better and for our good and for his glory. So the soul-searching challenge is, do we joyfully and sufficiently praise the Lord or is even are we even so self-centered that our worship is about us? It begins again, verse 1, O Lord, that's Yahweh, the, the covenant name of God. So he's saying, O Lord, O our covenant God. O Lord, O Lord. Now it looks like he's repeating himself, but he's not. They're different names of God. Another version to make it easier says, O Lord, O Lord, our sovereign God, how excellent or how majestic is your name. Now, name has a lot to do with who he is, but in this instance, it seems to have a lot to do with his presence. How excellent is your name in all the earth who have set your glory above the heavens. So he opens up right out of the box. No, no intro or anything like that. Lord, how excellent, how majestic you are, how far above you are above all the kings and queens of the earth who we would meet in person and we would refer to them as your majesty. Lord, you are really the only true royalty. You are the true king in all the earth. All the earth. There is not, this word all is going to be used a lot. There is not one inch of this planet that you are not 
the Lord, that you are not the majestic king. And so here, David joyfully celebrates the creator king. And sometimes when you get into the presence of God, quite honestly, praise is all you can do. There's really nothing else you can do. You, you want to speak, you want to have the right words, but the best thing and the only thing you can really do is praise God and thank him for who he is. Now, I do prefer the term majestic over excellent only because I just think the word excellent is kind of played out. Like, you know, that's excellent, man. Oh, that's, that's excellent. We, majestic is not a word that we use very often. And the idea is it is a word that means adoration. Oh, you're majestic. Or, or amazement. This is so important as we've been talking about in, on Sundays in Habakkuk in living a life by faith, that, that we understand that, 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 that the Lord is majestic and excellent and we adore him and we are amazed at him. It is, if you will, when we look up into the stars, when we look at the person of the Lord in his name, that the Lord is on display. And interestingly enough here for David, it does not induce fear. Rather, David is looking up at the sky He's looking around, he's gazing at the Lord and rejoices in the Lord his God. Notice what David says, majestic is your name. There's a gift of God in his name, particularly in his covenant name, the name of Yahweh, that tells us a lot about him. If you, if you know anything about the Bible, if you don't, no problem. If, you know, if you're new to this, we're glad you're with us, man. This is awesome. But, but if you know something about the Bible, you could go back to the, the book of Exodus. Great, great thing, a little confusing towards the end, but, but really interesting story of what happens with Moses. And Moses uh, meets God in Exodus chapter 3, and God's like, hey, I want you to you know, go, talk to Mo, you know, go talk to Pharaoh about me and tell him, you know, let my people go out into the, wor- into the wilderness and worship me. And, and Moses says to God, okay, no problem. I, you know, if I got to go, I got to go, even though he wants to back down a little later. And he says, um, what should I tell him your name is? Like he's in a burning bush. Like, who are you? What, what, what's your name? And God uses his covenant name, which our Bible translations translate it, I am who I am. You got to think, he's like, that's not very helpful. I am who I am. Now, to some of us, to an American ear, it sounds very different than it did to Moses. To us, when somebody says, well, that's just the way I am, or, or I am who I am, it's sort of like, well, just deal with it. Or very common today, I'm going to be what I got to be, and you got you to gotta deal with it. You got you to respect it. For, for us, it might be better to think of God saying to him, I will be. In other words, he's saying something to Moses like, I am the God who is, and I am the God who continues to be. And that name, even though Moses lived a long time before David, that name Yahweh, the God who was and and is and will be, is a name as he gazes at the stars, is a name that causes David to, to worship. And it actually should cause us to worship as we understand or begin to get our arms around what the terminology actually means. You say, well, how do we, how do we get that? Well, for David, I will be is an amazing promise from God. Basically, it, it, it means to him, Moses, David, you, follower of Jesus, me, The same thing that Jesus said at the very end of Matthew's gospel. I will always be with you. I will be. I always will be. I will always be with you. And as we study the Old Testament and we see this, you know, we see this to be true, that God is always with his people, always with his people, both in blessing and in divine discipline. But there's more to it here than then meets the eye. When he says, I will be, this is an invitation. 
This is an invitation to a lifelong, eternal discovery of God. Did you hear that? God is inviting you, God is inviting me tonight to a lifelong and eternal discovery of him. Remember we said it's not just about making, we've said before, it's not just about making a decision to follow Jesus. It's about making disciples, true committed followers of Jesus Christ who want to follow him today, tomorrow, until they breathe their last and look forward to learning more about God all throughout eternity. So again, another soul-searching question, not to make you feel guilty, but when I talk about being invited into a lifelong and eternal discovery of God, does that excite you? Is that like, yes, I want it, I want it, I want it, or is it like, oh, another thing to do, or something in between? But honestly, God wants nothing less than I want it, I'm excited, I'm I'm in, I'm all in. And and does it help you to see, as we've been learning in again in Habakkuk, why enduring and persevering in the faith is so important because it is part of that invitation that God gives us. There's one one more point on I am who I am or I will be. On the one hand, it is a gift, an invitation to come to God. We come to God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But it also means something else. When He says, I am who I am, or I will be, it also means we cannot turn God into who we want Him to be. Now, you may not like that, but I love that. I love the fact that God is stable. I love the fact that he can't be changed by my, you know, my emotions, my ups and downs. And I love the fact that he can't be manipulated. I love the fact that, that he is solid, he is the rock, and he, he will be, he is who he is. But, but to David... Unlike many others, actually, that, that's good news, too, because it's bad news to a lot of people, including a lot of church people, because what do they want to do? They want to create God in their own image. Martin Luther said all of the sins that we commit basically all stem from that. We disobey the command that we should not create a God in our own image, and everything falls out, all the bad sin that we do, all the stuff that we do, falls out of that because we want God to be a certain way. We want to manipulate him. But to David and true followers of Jesus, we worship with joy our majestic, unchanging God who is always with us, who always speaks to us, and no one controls him. I don't, want a, I don't want a God that's weak. I don't want a God that can be controlled by anybody else. I want a God who controls everything. Now, let's go back to the end of verse 1 and to verse 2. It's a bit confusing, and we could spend a long time here, but we really won't. It says, Who have set uh, your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained, some versions say uh, established, strength because of your enemies that you may silence. That probably means bring them to an end, the enemy and the avenger. That's one of those verses you're like, what, what is he talking about? So I always think when, when things are confusing, don't you, you know, when we talked about praying through the, through the Psalms, move on. If you're confused, move on. Or you think God's telling you something about babies and, and nursing infants, then stop there and pray for babies and nursing infants. That's fine. But, but when things are confusing or difficult, it's best to keep us, keep it simple. And so the Lord is calling attention to his strength by making a comparison of nursing infant to infants to his enemies. So when at the end of verse 1, he says the glory of the Lord above the heavens, when he comes to earth, his 
enemies will have no chance. And really, Jesus looked like an infant or harmless to so many of God's enemies, but he came in meekness, humility, and great power and strength. See, God is so strong that something like an infant or a baby that might seem powerless to us, his own son might seem, again, powerless to his enemies, that it can be used by him to overwhelm the mighty. So what strength does the mouth of babes and nursing infants have? Now, I know you're thinking, I know, I've seen plenty of a big bruising man pick up a little baby and turn into a little kid himself. That's true. But what's he, what do you think he's talking about here? Well, what was David doing in verse 1? He was praising the Lord. I think he's talking about the exact same thing here in verse 2 with these infants and these, these nursing infants and mouth of babes. I think their strength is connected to praise, praising God. Now, some of you are like, where do you get this stuff? Well, let's fast forward to Jesus' life. In the last week of Jesus' life, he came into Jerusalem. Remember, he rode in on a donkey on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. And he goes into the temple, goes to church. And uh, it's sort of like a flea market. So he's flipping over the tables, and he's really upset about everything. And as you can imagine, the people there that are making money and the religious leaders were making, skimming a lot of money off the top. They're not too happy about it. And we read in Matthew chapter 21, verse 14 through 16, says this, Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, came to Jesus, and he, Jesus, healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. <laughs> you're flipping out the tables. You're, now you're healing people. And now everybody's yelling out to you like you're God. They're so indignant. But you want to know something? The next verse, they're going to go beyond indignant, even though we're not told it here. And said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, have you never read? It's one of my favorite things that Jesus says. I love it when he says to the religious leaders, do you have a Bible? If you don't have one, we'd be happy to give you one. We'll mail you one free of charge or something like that. These guys who spent their entire lives memorizing the Bible, Jesus was constantly calling them out. He was constantly saying, haven't you read? Not meaning haven't you read it, but don't you get it? Don't you get it? See, there's reading the Bible and there's getting the Bible. There's, there's, there's you know, grasping the Bible and having the Bible grasp you. So he says, yes, have you never read? And notice what he quotes. He quotes this verse from Psalm 8. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Now, some of you right now are going, Pastor Jim, you stole your answer from Jesus. I did. I steal everything from Jesus. I'm perfectly willing to admit it. Now you say, well, why were they so angry about it? Well, they were indignant or angry in verse 15. They would have been absolutely crazed in verse 16 because what did Jesus just do? He just claims praise that is reserved for God, and he just told them that the religious leaders themselves were actually God's enemies. And he was going to use something simple, praise, something simple, his own son, to defeat his enemies. The, the Apostle Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 had his famous thorn in the flesh. Something was wrong with him, some sickness. He was praying that God would take it away. He prayed three times. And um, chapter 12, verse 9 through 10, it says, And he, it's Jesus, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. This is the risen Christ talking. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Same thing, right? Just like the little babes. Strength made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, he says, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress for Christ's sake. Why would he take pleasure in that? Because he realizes this. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Because the power of God is displayed in my weakness. So this is incredible. God promises, God routinely builds strength in those who know that they are weak in and of themselves, and that doesn't produce, oh, I'm just such a miserable wretch. I can't believe it. I'm so weak. I'm so useless. Not at all. It produces what? Praise. It produces praise. Knowing we, David's like, I'm weak, but God is strengthening me. I'm going to praise him. Paul says, I'm weak, but God is strengthening me. I'm going to praise him. And so there is power in weakness for the follower of Jesus. And, and when we praise God, think about this, that praise is a powerful weapon, a powerful weapon from heaven. I've said this to you many times before. First time I ever went to a church like ours. I'd grown up in church. And I'd seen the people kind of mouthing the songs or barely singing or, you know, the lady be playing the organ and, you know, one person would be kind of singing off key up on the, up on the you know, balcony or something like that. But then I went to this church and people were singing. They were singing songs of joy and majesty to their God and to their king. I'm telling you, man, I was looking around like, wow, I've never seen anything like this before. The Apostle Paul says in Corinthians, to the Corinthians, listen, you do this, and people see you praising and hear the word of God, and they will fall down in repentance. That's how, that's how revival happens. And here's the interesting thing about praise. It's something every follower of Jesus can do. It's something you can do. It's something I can do. You don't have to have any special gifting or talent or something like that. You know, different gifts there are in the Bible. You don't have to have any of that. Every single one of us can praise the Lord. And I might be stepping out on a limb here, but I think it's, I think it's fair to say that according to Jesus, joyless, lacking passion, self-centered, Tone down. I don't mean soft singing. I mean because you really don't want it. You're not that into it. That kind of worship is wrong. It's just wrong. It's too self-centered. It's not God-directed. David would be like, come on, let's get with it. Praise the Lord. Ultimately, no one, no one can extinguish God's glory in heaven and on earth. And this is one thing that we should always remember. Whenever you hold a little baby, and I know some of you just had some. I had them, right? Whenever you hold a little baby, remember this. The sound of that baby reminds you that God's plan is still marching on. The fact that we keep populating and we keep going, that we are moving towards that the end time towards God's plan. You say, marches on towards what? Well, did you forget already what our good friend Habakkuk told us? Habakkuk 2.14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, each little baby that comes, that we pray over to become followers of Jesus Christ, reminds us, that the plan is in motion, and the plan is moving forward. Verse 3, David writes, When I consider, very important, he personalizes it. When I, when I think about this, when I, when I look at this, I'm not, just, I'm not just looking at the stars. I'm, I'm thinking about this. When I consider your heavens, and he's probably talking about the stars he's thinking of, the work of your Fingers. I mean, that's cool. We'll talk about that in a second. It's, it's not the work of his hands. It's the work of his fingers. The, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, or, or some versions say which you have set in place. 
Now, verse 4 is a very, very popular verse, probably on your happy calendars uh, or maybe on your refrigerator, something like that. But I believe it's, it's often misunderstood, and it depends upon how you read it, but we have to read it in context, not just in and of itself. We're going to read it twice. He says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? So he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Perhaps on a night, looking up at the stars, thinking, who, who am I, Lord? Who am I? Who, who, who are we that we would have any purpose or any meaning in this vast universe? And the Son of Man, a name for humanity, that you would visit him. Another version puts it this way. What are mortals that you care for them? So, so David's kind of like, I'm looking up, I'm seeing the vastness of all this. And yet here I am, I'm just looking up, and I know you. I know you personally. What, what, what is that? Now, see, a lot of times people read this verse and they're thinking God is like, well, why do you care about us? I don't think that's what it means. In verse 3, David sees and considers the moon and the stars, and without a telescope, he is amazed with the grandeur of it. Interesting, he doesn't use the word hand. He uses the word fingers, pointing, even looking up at the stars, pointing at the incredible artistic detail of God. Like God was like, oh, I'll put this star here. I'll put that one there. Oh, I'll, I'll move that one over there. Just so carefully doing it. And then David, of course, being a shepherd, being like all of us who take notice of the stars, he notices that the stars appear at night, disappear during the day, only to return again the next night, and the cycle continues to repeat itself. And so he seems to conclude that not only um, did God create the cosmos, not only are the cosmos God created, but they're also God directed. Like he is directing the movement of everything that's going on. You know, he doesn't need to know about how, how the earth moves and the stars are there and all that. He doesn't need, he's like, everything is just moving. It comes and it goes. God's directing it. And he's overwhelmed. Now, again, as David is humbly pondering his own insignificance in light of the enormity of the solar system that he can see, many think he's saying, why do you care about us? Why do you care about us? But in the context of Psalm 8, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think that what David is having right now in, in realizing that the stars are so massive and that he's just little old him, known by God and knows his creator, I think he's suffering from what we call today data, a data overload. There's just too much information coming in. He, he's in wonder. He can't believe it. He's full of confusion and wonder. This is, this is off the charts joy, what he's saying. This is off the charts praise. I think that he is looking up at the sky and he cries out, looking at all of this, and he cries out in abundant faith and abundant joy, what is man that you are mindful of him? In other words, how can you be so good that you could care so intimately about me? How could you be the one who runs an entire universe? Everything's moving around. Look at everything up there. And yet, you know my hopes. You know my dreams. 
You know my fears. You know my heartache. And you know me. And you've allowed me the opportunity to know you. It's like he's saying, Lord, listen, <laughs> when I was a little kid, my dad taught me about the stars, and he learned about it from his dad, or learned about it from his dad, or learned about it from his dad. They're going to be there for years and years, and yet you care about me and everyone else on this little planet we're on. He doesn't know it's little. You care about our short journey on earth. Those stars, they may be there forever and ever. But you care about our little journey on earth. Although he's not sure why, David knows that he, David knows that you, David knows that me matter to God. And so when he says, what is man that you are mindful to me, I believe with all of my heart, this is complete out of breath praise. He's, he's, he's bursting. He is bursting. I can't believe this. It is almost too good to be true. It's also, friends, an incredible lesson on the grace of God. There is nothing, I don't care if you're an astronaut in a spaceship, there is nothing that anyone can do that can make them stand out in the galaxy and yet God sees you. That's all the grace of God. There's no other answer for it. This should give us a, a, a sense of our great worth to God. I mean, we see it in Jesus dying on the cross. We see it in, 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 in the creation that despite the, the enormity of the creation, they keep finding more and more things that God knows who we are. And while it does give us a sense of our great worth to God, at the same time, it should undo our sense of self-importance. It should remind us of the great care that God has for us, of the great plan of God He has for you, friend, and for me, in putting us in the world exactly in the time that he did. Yeah, it might seem rough right now, awful right now, but God knows what he's doing. If you're a follower of Jesus, combine this with Jesus dying on the cross in your place for your sins, and it's clear as day, God is invested in you. You matter to him. He is deeply, deeply invested in you. So much so that his son died on the cross for your sins. If you're not a follower of Jesus, again, I'm really glad that you're with us tonight. The night sky reminds us of what we deny much of the day. That this is God's world. Earlier this week, I had the opportunity to talk to two young men. They were both 21, and we were hanging out. We hung out for actually for a while, and we were talking. I had just met them, and, and so um, we were just talking and talking and talking. They were fishing. I was just asking about the little pond they were fishing in. And, and so, you know, we got to talking about what I did for a job and what they did for a job, and we were going back and forth. And, and, and you know, I, I said to them, you know, one guy's like, I just wonder where, where it all came from. And I said, oh, yeah, well, it's what we call agency. We're, how did it all get here? Where did it all start? We, we're all, I, and he said, you know, nobody really knows, do they? I said, well, you all go back to the beginning, and nobody can really, where does the matter come from? And he goes to me, uh, it kind of makes you want to believe in God. You see, you see here we, we, we see that this is, we look up at the sky at night, and we realize this is God's, world. Evidence of God is all around us. Yet in many ways, we are like that little baby. We are, we are weak and we are, we are frail. Or in other ways, we're like people who, who live to be over 100 years old and say, man, it all went so quickly. 
We come and go so quickly. Before we know it, we're forgotten here on earth. And David calls us the son of man. Jesus called himself that because he entered into our frailty. And Jesus will remember all who have turned to him and put their trust in him. All who have turned away from their self-directed life, just, you know, I'm doing my own thing. I don't really care about God. And now they're like, oh no, there's a lot around me that reminds me of God. I, I want to be right with him. He, Jesus says, if you, if you will turn to me and you put your trust in me, then I will forgive your sins. He'll remember you. When you die, he won't be like, who's that guy? No, because he knows you and you know him. In the Bible, uh, to remember is, it means so different things. Generally, it means that God remembers the promises that he, he made, but it can also mean that God is moving towards you. He will remember you. He remembers you every day, follower of Jesus. When, you, when he moves towards you, when he cares for you, he is deeply concerned for you. Verse 5, we get some insight about why he cares about us so much. He said, for you have made him, man, a little lower than the angels. Some versions say heavenly beings. A lot of translations in the literal Hebrew translation is a little less than God. But people change it because they're like, that couldn't be possibly right. But probably having to do with being made in the image of God. And you have crowned him, man, with glory and honor. You have made him, again man, to have dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. So God has put all things under our feet. And that would be, language to them would be when a king would, would win, a, win a battle, he would put his, you know, he put the, the enemy king under his foot. Verse 7, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, would be all the animals, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the pass of the sea. So what, what happens with all of them? They are, they've, all things have been put under our feet. We are, if you will, the top of the world because we are created in the image of God. So here God tells us a big part of his care for humans. It's the position he gave us to oversee our planet. I'm not going to ask you how you think we're doing on that one. And this goes back to Genesis chapter 1, that God gave us this as human beings. In verse 5, he says that, that we are crowned with glory and honor. That shows us the important position that humanity has here on earth. Because as we said, humans were made in the image of God. Interesting, we are to... Uh, represent God, not just to other people, but we're to represent God and make uh, known um, to the creation what God is like. And we've said this many times before, the, the Bible writers have incredible insight into God simply because they are Bible readers. It's almost like David is writing here in Psalm 8, and he's sort of alluding to Genesis chapter 1 and kind of saying to us, we're important to God because he said so. And he's been telling us since the very beginning. And so having gazed at the stars, having worshiping the God who sees and the God who cares, the word of God, Genesis 1, the entirety of the Word of God opens up David's eyes and his ears. In Luke chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus is teaching and he says this, Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Now, how does Jesus know that? Now, some of you are like, Pastor Jim, that's a, that's a softball question. That's easy. He, he knows it because he's God. Okay, fine. I get it. How did he know it when he was 12? Was it because 
He had read Genesis 1 and Psalm 8. Jesus had to learn the Bible just like we have to. You see, Jesus knows, the Scripture teaches, that all that we see was given to man by the grace of God. Despite what many may say, the grace of God is evident in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And we, we cheapen the grace of God when we limit the grace of God to forgiveness only and, and use it as an excuse to say that sinning is okay because of grace, God's going to forgive me anyway. Whenever I hear that, I'm like, just please do your finger on a chalkboard. That, that would be easier on me than saying that. You see, what God is saying here is when he's given us dominion over the earth, this is the grace of responsibility. God's grace comes with responsibility. Now, a lot of people who say they're Christians, they push back on any kind of responsibility God gives us. They're like, oh, no, there's grace. There's no responsibility. And I'm like, what Bible are you not reading? What, what Old Testament and what New Testament are you not reading? I'm, I'm not sure why you would even want to think that way. Because the responsibility that God gives us is part of the grace of glory. It's part of the grace of honor. It's part of the grace of authority. And this grace is given to us despite the fact that we are sinners. Another reason to praise the Lord. But there's a problem. Did you catch it? Did you see it? Remember, David wrote this. He said, you have put all things, talking about mankind, all things. Another verse says, everything under his feet. In other words, mankind is supposed to rule the whole created order. <laughs> we can't even rule ourselves. We can't even get out of bed on time. But the writer of Hebrews saw this in the New Testament. And he quoted parts of Psalm 8. And he realized that what God had originally intended was not happening. And then he writes this in Hebrews 2.9. But we see Jesus. It's almost like all of the, the problems that, that we have are are come together and they're solved in the person of Jesus. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. God became a man and was a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. What is that? That's the gospel invitation. Friend, if you put your trust in Jesus, then Jesus will taste death for you. If you don't, then you will have to taste death yourself. But, but Jesus came. He, he lived a perfect life in your place. You don't have to be perfect. He died a sinner's death on the cross. He died for the punishment for your sins and my sins against a holy God. You and I don't have to be punished by God. And to prove that God was satisfied with it, he rose him from the dead. So Jesus came that he might test, taste death for everyone. Has he tasted it for you? Would you like to change that tonight and never die? He says, but we see Jesus. We, we see the man who beat death and who rose from the dead and who has been crowned with glory and with honor. That's what he said in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. And remember what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now Jesus, 
the risen Christ reigns over the created order and will bring all who put their trust in him to glory. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you will share in his reign for all eternity. So Psalm 8, written a thousand years before Jesus was even born, even looks beyond our own time to the return of Jesus Christ. When Jesus returns, he will make all things new. We won't even recognize anything. And so Psalm 8 then will be more than a song of praise. It will be reality. That's because, friend, eternal glory awaits all who are followers of Jesus. And we will also reign with Jesus, our risen Savior, King. So, what should our response be as a congregation, as a bunch of people together feeding upon God's word, hearing that God is, cares about you in the midst of the entire cosmos, the creator of it all actually knows you, cares for you, sent his son to die for you. What should our reaction as a congregation be? I think it should be for all of us to fall down on our knees and shout out in glorious praise, verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent, how incredibly majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray.